Okay? All right, Luke chapter 15. Turn there in your Bible, Luke chapter number 15. We've been in a series in our adult Bible study classes um, the last five weeks entitled Tell Somebody. And Brother Mike's done a great job writing that, trying to help us uh, practically with how to share the gospel. Why we should share the gospel, and when we should share the gospel, and where we should share the gospel, and how we should share the gospel. I think there's been some very, very practical points in there that could help us in bridging uh, from just a natural, organic conversation to a gospel conversation. And uh, so I appreciate Brother Mike doing that. And I thought that, that the second story in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus gives would be a fitting conclusion to that um, series, and the reason why I'm in the second story is because I've already preached the first one. If you remember back the first Sunday of February, when we were introducing the Reacher One journals, I preached the first short story that Jesus gives the Pharisees there in Luke chapter 15 about the shepherd finding a lost sheep. And so we talked about that to try to inspire you a little bit, instruct you a little bit in terms of reaching your one. And I told you then that that I'm going to try to preach through this entire parable throughout the year to bring us back to this theme of going forward in evangelism by way of reaching our one. And here's what I found, that we can give you a, a journal, a Reach Your One journal. If you don't have one of those, by the way, they're in the Resource Center. We can give you one if you want to get started on that. If you've lost it and you want to get a new one, that'll be fine too. We have extras. So just go back there and grab one. But, but it's one of those tools that is really neat when we put it in your hand. And it creates a lot of momentum and energy and, and vision for reaching the lost. But what can happen, even as short as a month from getting the journal, is you just kind of forget about it. And so in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I want to reach my one if God gives me the opportunity. But you're not that proactive about those four steps. Praying for your one, that's why you need a journal. Praying for your one and loving your one and inviting one and feeding your one. And, and so that's why we gave the journal, so you could track that and, and, and really stay on track and with reaching your one. So if maybe you've put that aside, or you've forgotten about that, or the passion has kind of died just a little bit, um, I hope that this short lesson this morning will be able to kind of revamp that a little bit, get us all back on track. And if you, if you have joined um, after we introduced the Reacher One, then we want you to get on board with that right now and, and grab that in between services and is Miss Joyce Barnes here today, or is she not here? She's usually at the Resource Center. So, Brother Mike, just make sure those are out after Sunday school, and you can just go by and grab one of those journals. Let's read together in Luke 15 and verse 8. Here's the second story that Jesus gives them. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it? And when she found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. And then this verse is what that hymn we just sang is based off of. Verse 10, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Subject to the message is this, the God of the lost coin. I introduced the, this message the last time, the first story, I introduced with this quote, and I want to give it to you again because I think it's so eye-opening. J.D. Greer says this, when churches see success, they tend to get settled. Within a generation, they move from mission to maintenance. They go from being reckless in the mission to being comfortable in the institution. I just got done this morning showing the Brooks through 
our facility upstairs, the youth wing and the children's wing. And their response is much like everybody else's when we showed them through the facility that God has blessed us with. Man, what a blessing. This is great. It's awesome. And, and my passion for this facility and, and my pride is welled up once again every time I get to show somebody what God has done in, in our corner of the world. It's really neat. But the tendency would be to move from mission to maintenance. When we get in a building like this and, and, and we're doing okay numerically and financially and the ministries are flowing well and the choir's singing well and the preacher's preaching well, people are giving well, then we can kind of get inward focused if we're not careful. And we can go from being reckless in the mission to being comfortable in the institution. Hear me, please. We, are, we should never get comfortable in the institution. Ever. That's the first step to Fellowship Baptist Church dying. Is people in the pew getting inward focused and comfortable with just us. On this particular day in Luke 15, Jesus is minding his own business. When a group of, I would call, no good for nothing people uh, draw near to him. Those no good for nothing people are made up of two groups of people. The first is, is what Jesus refers to as the publicans. They'd have been known as the tax collectors of their day. They were hated, and here's why they were hated so badly, because they were government officials who were working for the wrong government. They were Jewish people who had linked up with the Roman Empire, and they were overtaxing their fellow countrymen, and so... Everybody hated publicans, the tax collectors. And the other group that, that drew near to Jesus was what they called sinners. They were called sinners in general because that was their reputation. They, they just didn't sin every once in a while. Like, it was their reputation. They were pretty bad people. It was their lifestyle. Sinning was the game for them. But more specifically than that, they rebelled or they sinned against the teaching of the Pharisees and the religious rulers of that day. They despised their teaching. They willfully rebelled against their teaching. And so the Pharisees and religious rulers hated what they called the sinners. And Luke tells us that these two groups of people drew near to Jesus, not just to follow the new popular preacher of the day, but to actually hear what he had to say. Because there was apparently something Jesus was teaching that intrigued these sinners, intrigued these publicans. Something he was preaching was different than the message they rebelled against that they heard from the Pharisees. Because what they heard from Jesus, as opposed to what they heard from the Pharisees, was a message of grace. A message that says, I love you just as you are, where you are, but my grace doesn't let you stay that way. The Pharisees didn't love them where they were. And as they were. Clean up your act, then come to us. And so it was very refreshing for this group of no good for nothings to hear a man that demonstrated grace. But the publicans and sinners weren't the only ones there. The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes happened to be standing at a distance observing what was going on as Jesus was sitting with these groups of people. And I want you to notice the geographical location of the scribes and Pharisees. They, they were close enough to Jesus to know what was going on, but they were far enough away to feel comfortable criticizing Jesus for what he was doing. Sounds like some church members. Close enough to know what's going on, but far enough to get away with criticizing what's going on. we got to be careful about having a pharisaical attitude. And what was going on is the religious leaders were murmuring. That means they were literally complaining under their breath. 
They were mumbling, and here's what they said quietly enough so that no one could hear, so they thought. They said, this man, they didn't call him by name, he receiveth sinners. They were saying he welcomes them. He accepts them. He hosts them. He receives them. And then, and then they said this, he eats with them. That means he lets them sit at the table he's sitting at. In fact, he goes in and sits at their table, and they know it's not about the food. They can tell from afar off that, that it's more about the fellowship. It's not about necessarily what's being served in dinner. It's about what's being said around the table. And they're noticing and murmuring about the fact that Jesus, the so-called Messiah, is talking with them as though they are his friends. And they thought this in their heart. Hey, it's not okay. This is a disgrace. These are the people that are supposed to be rejected, not received. They're supposed to be enemies and not friends. They're supposed to be ignored and not fed. They're supposed to be criticized, not cared for. And they thought they were speaking quietly enough for no one to hear them. Little did they know that Jesus was God. And that means he not only hears the words that come out of our mouth audibly, but he hears the language of our hearts and our minds. And so he just responds to the murmuring religious leaders by telling them three short stories. A story of a shepherd and a lost sheep, a story of a woman and a lost coin, and a story of a father and a lost son. And all three of these stories have the same exact point. And I can sum it up in five words. Here it is. Lost people matter to God. Amen. That's the point of the stories. Lost people matter to God. At the beginning of the year, I was introducing the Reacher One journals, and I preached the first short story I said about the shepherd and the lost sheep. Jesus, in that story, wanted the Pharisees to put themselves in the position of a lowly shepherd. That position was very lowly in their day, which would have been somewhat offensive to them. And then he, he made the shepherd a picture of God himself, searching for the lost sheep. Now he's going to even step a step further, go a step further, and he's going to get more offensive because he's going to make them put themselves in the position of a lowly woman. Now understand, women weren't treated right in the ancient Middle East. It was a man's world. They were disregarded, were undervalued. They were trampled upon. They weren't allowed to have a voice, especially in public. But Jesus didn't treat women like this at all. In fact, he goes so far as to make the woman a picture of God himself. And the story tells us of a woman who loses a coin somewhere in her house, gets her broom out, sweeps diligently until she finds it. When she finds it, she rejoices, so much so that she doesn't think she's the only one that should rejoice. She knocks on the door of her friends and neighbors and says, Come rejoice with me, I found my one lost coin. Of course, we know the woman is a picture of God himself searching diligent for the lost until he finds it. And the coin is a picture of lost souls. And so in this story, I, I want to make some observations of the coin. We talked about the shepherd, which is a picture of God, and the woman would be very same. So I, I, I want to talk about what the coin stands for. Some lessons the coin would teach us about lost souls. Hopefully in an effort to kind of fan the flame and get us going again for reaching our one. Four observations. You ready? Here's the first. Like the coin, lost souls are valuable. Jesus tells the story of this woman frantically sweeping her house. And here's why he tells that story. So as to get his audience, the religious leaders, to ask themselves, why is she doing that? Why is she spending so much effort frantically looking for a coin? Well, the answer is very simple. Because the coin was valuable. It had spending value. 
The, the kind of coin she lost would have been what they call the drachma coin. It would have been similar to size and worth of the Roman denarius. It would have been worth one day's wage. So she had ten total, and it's thought to be that, that, that these ten coins were actually her life savings at this point. So they were very, very valuable. They had a lot of spending value to her, but they also had social value. So I mentioned earlier, the ancient Middle East was a, was a man's world, and so women weren't really appreciated. But on rare occasions, after they got married, a man who actually did appreciate his wife would give her what they called a dowry. That's ten silver coins. To signify that, that, that he thinks a lot of her. And this would have given her a lot of credibility in public, especially. And it went one step further than spending value and social value. Because of this dowry that was given to her, it also had sentimental value. Because oftentimes they, they would value that, that dowry that their husband gave them so much that they would then um, make a head ornament out of those, those ten coins. And, and they would wear that head ornament proudly in public, signifying to the world what their husband thinks of them and the authority their husband's given them in their home. And so to lose even one coin from this head ornament would be equivalent to a woman losing her wedding ring today. Much sentimental value. You can always buy a new wedding ring, but it's that sentimental value, that even that social value that a wedding ring would have. And here's the point. God wants to tell the Pharisees, and he wants to tell us today, that every lost soul, even if it's just one, every lost soul is valuable to him and should be valuable to us. And I say all because the Pharisees could have thought the whole time, hey, it's just one coin, she has nine more. It's just one sheep, he has 99 more. Why frantically look for the one? Because God values all lost souls. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's what that means practically for us. If all lost souls are valuable to God, and they are, then they're valuable despite their race. If all lost souls are valuable to God, and they are, then they're valuable despite their political views. If all lost souls are valuable to God, and they are, then they're valuable despite their sexual orientation or the confusion thereof. They're valuable despite their outward appearance. They're valued him despite their age, their social status, their past. Just talking to a church member yesterday, and he was telling me of a Baptist church in the Oklahoma area that started a bus route. Two eager young men wanted to start a bus route. They spent their own money to buy a bus. They bought a bus route, and within a month or two, they had built this bus route up and filled that entire bus up. A couple established members in the church came to the pastor at that point and said, I don't think we can have these bus kids in, in here anymore. They're kind of messing up the property. That's a reality. They mess up our property. And it's okay. Because all lost souls are valuable. Including the ones that couldn't get to church if it weren't for the three buses that go out every Sunday morning. Yeah. Number two, like the coin, lost souls are helpless. What you think about this? When you consider the lost sheep in the first story... It's a little different than the coin that was lost in the second story because the lost sheep still have a voice. The lost sheep can bleat. They can cry. The shepherd can track them down and identify their voice. But the lost coin is an inanimate object. It has no emotion. 
has no will, no mind, no soul, no body. It, it's absolutely helpless to save itself. The coin doesn't even know it's lost. God cares for lost souls because he knows when they are lost in sin, there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. If you think about it, such was the case with you and I before we came to know Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we're worse than a coin. We're a corpse. We were dead in trespasses and in sins. And while we were still in that sin, watch, we did nothing and could have done nothing to save ourselves from that sin. God sent Jesus to die for us. God, through the Holy Spirit, drew us. We didn't draw ourselves to God. It's not our, our, our responsibility. We confessed our sin and we believed, but in that moment, God forgave us. We didn't clean our own lives up. God washed us in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We did nothing. Jesus did everything. We didn't find God. He found us. And it's good for us to stop every once in a while and remember that we all have a B.C. and an A.D. A life before Christ and a life after Christ. And if it weren't for someone that cared enough to grab a broom and sweep through our house until they found us, we wouldn't be sitting in a padded church wearing our Sunday best. Why don't you thank God for the frantic woman that diligently swept your house until she found you? The Sunday school teacher and the youth pastor and the pastor and the missionary and the revival speaker and the bus worker and the children's church worker and the co-worker and the family member. Thank God for the person that swept the, the house to find you. Remember now the, the immediate audience to these stories of the smug religious leaders. They weren't sweeping lost people's houses. Jesus is trying to tell them this point. Watch. They're not going to come to us. For the most part, we're going to have to go sweep their house. We're going to have to go sit on their table. At their table. On their chairs at their table. Mind your manners. Yeah. Here's the point. They're helpless. Now, I'll talk about it in the next point. Sometimes they'll come to us. But in most regards, we got to go to the lost because like the coin, sometimes the lost don't even know they're lost. They think they're okay. That's why we, we talked about in the, in, in the last lesson to tell somebody we got to close the deal. What does that mean? You just can't tell them about God. you gotta, you got to actually invite them to God. Are you ready to accept Jesus? Are you ready to ask forgiveness for your sins? Because they can hear the gospel all day long and it doesn't mean that they still recognize their lostness. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They're lifeless. They need somebody to tell them about Jesus. Mm. Let's go to number three. Like the coin, there are lost souls in the house. You didn't notice that she was in her own house sweeping diligently. Until she found it. It's implied that she found it in her house. And so it's really important for us to recognize this observation. That people go to hell from bar stools. They do. But they also go to hell from church pews. And so let's not get so wrapped up in reaching lost souls outside this place. That we miss the lost souls that God brings here every single week. Are you hearing me? Lost souls of every age. We pick up lost bus kids that are in here every week. There are lost teenagers that come to Wednesday Night Impact every week. 
There are people that find their, their way into Fellowship Baptist Church because they're driving by, they're invited by a coworker, they just want to turn over a new leaf, whatever the case might be, and they find themselves in this place. And so we got to be mindful that, that people walk in here every week that don't know Jesus. Are you hearing me? In fact, Pastor and, and my mom just, just led a couple to Christ last week in their home who had been visiting here for how long, Brother Mike? Six months at least, maybe a year? A long time. Their daughter goes to our Christian school. And, and Pastor was able to lead them to Christ. And, and it's easy, isn't it, for us to come in here week after week, sing the songs we know, fellowship with the people we're comfortable with, Go to our class, minister in our, in our ministry, go to the nursery, do what we do, and then go home and never once even think about, I wonder who was in our building who didn't know Jesus. What I liked about Brother Vaught so much, Brother John Vaught, is he was so good at spotting people that appeared to be lost. And, and, and what he did is he didn't wait until they left the house he asked them about Jesus while they were inside the house. And you would see him in the foyer, tucked away in a corner somewhere, asking somebody, hey, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Why don't we do that more? I'll tell you why, because we're in our clique. We got lunch cooking. We don't, it doesn't need a burn. And we're doing all of our ministries and all of our other things, and we're so busy... That we have no, no, we're not mindful at all about the one lost coin or the one lost sheep that might have come into this place. We exist so that lost people can come in. So be mindful of when they do. And be more than friendly, be a friend. They actually need more than our handshake. They need our lives. They need someone to do life with them outside of this house. Take that personally. Let's do one more. Like the coin, lost souls can be lost and stay lost because of the carelessness of those who are saved. It's implication in the text. Watch. If it, in the first story of the lost sheep, the sheep was most likely lost because it wandered off. The shepherd would have been blamed, but it was partially the sheep's fault. But in the story of the lost coin, the coin didn't lose itself. It's impossible. Somehow the woman was careless with the coin and misplaced it, dropped it, it fell out, she lost track of it. She even took blame for losing the coin in verse 9 when she says that I'm going to rejoice because I have found the peace which I had lost. Here's the point. Lost souls often stay lost because of the carelessness of those that are saved. I heard this just a month ago, I heard this, eating with an individual visiting our church. I would go to church, I quote, I would go to church... But so-and-so go there, and they're hypocrites. Okay, usually, and it was this day too, my answer to that is simple, a little bit sarcastic. And I say, yes, we do have a lot of hypocrites at Fellowship Baptist Church, and we have room for one more if you want to join us. That's my initial response. I told my class last week, like, I am a recovering hypocrite. Truly. There are things that I preach in this pulpit and I go home and I don't live. Literally, I, I would preach, okay, this is the way we need a parent, or this is the way we need to treat our wives, and I would go home that night, that night, and I was irritable and I was short. That's a hypocrite. And so if you, 
like this church is full of recovering hypocrites. We're trying. We're trying. But that's just where we're at. But, but there is an ounce of truth in that complaint, though. Because sometimes saved people can act in such a way and live in such a way that cause lost people to stay lost. That excuse won't work for lost people at the great white throne judgment. Don't get me wrong, I'm not justifying that. There's no excuse for not believing in Jesus Christ. But we make it hard on lost people sometimes. By the way we talk, by the way we act, by the way we live, by the choices that we make. I'm talking about the way saved people act at work. I know this is Sunday school, but I'm just preaching today. But, but I'm talking about the way saved people act at work. The way bosses, saved bosses, treat their employees. It's, it's like saved bosses sometimes can disconnect their, their Christianity and their career. And so their employees under them, it's not just so much keeping their employees accountable. It's the attitude. It's the entitlement. It's a dictatorship. It's not servant leadership. Sometimes that can, that can, that can kind of um, scare a a saved employee away from the Jesus you claim to know and love. And it's also saved employees that show up late, that lie on the time clock, cheat their boss out of money, argue and are the center of drama at work. Christian, you shouldn't be the center of drama at work. It shouldn't be saved people. It shouldn't be saved people. You know what, what, what else I, I think they struggle with, sometimes lost people? It is how saved people act in church. There are just some people can come in and it's just like they, they feel like in, in some churches that, that the saved people are just so clicky, so polished, so inauthentic at times. And they struggle with that. Talking about the way saved people treat their spouses. Talking about the way saved people allow their children to behave. Talking about the way saved people don't pay their bills. Talking about the way saved people behave at the company Christmas party. Talking about the way saved people yell at the ump during their child's game. Or saved adults yell at the ump during their softball game. We're all guilty of those things. Don't think I'm, I'm preaching down to you like I haven't been there. Yeah, my dad's my boss and I've treated him in an unchristlike way. I'm just glad that Mike Collins is the only lost person who was able to see it. Been times on a softball field when I act like a kid. Been time coaching my son when I didn't like the call that Potsy made. <laughs> Had he not been a church member, I would have really gave it to him. In all seriousness, we, we, we've all, in some regards, I, I told the kids the story of losing my temper at Subway. You've heard that story, so I won't tell it again, but I traded in my, my testimony for a temper tantrum because they wouldn't make me a sandwich. It was 9.55 and they said they closed at 10. They wouldn't make it for me, even though it was only 9.55. Don't make me tell that story again. I, I, that's under the blood. But the point is, we, we've all done things, we've all been careless. Careless in our reactions, careless in our attitude, careless in our work ethic, careless in our financial stewardship, careless in the things we say. And, and we, I, I'm just asking us to be mindful of that. We can't be perfect. Times when we're going to be stressed out. Times when, when the flesh is going to get the best of us. But we need to be mindful before every reaction and every action 
that there are lost eyes watching us. And oftentimes, the opinion that they're making of Jesus is based on the life they see in us. So we got to be careful. So, so there are some observations. Let me run through them. They're valuable. Lost souls are helpless. Lost souls are in God's house. And then lost souls can stay lost because of the carelessness of those that are saved. Then Jesus closes out with a theme that he uses in all three stories. Look at verse 9. We'll be done. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Now watch here. There are four key words or phrases in all three of these stories. Watch. Lost is the first one. Go after is the second one. Found is the third one. And fourthly is rejoice. It's a key word. Because it's in every, this rejoice with me and God is rejoicing. It's in all three of the stories because, because it's the punchline. Are you listening? It's the punchline that Jesus uses to address the self-righteous Pharisee's heart towards sinners. Catch this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey Pharisees, hey religious snobs. If you really are my friend, if you're really my neighbor, then you won't criticize me for going after the lost and sinning with them and eating with them and fellowshiping with them. No, you'll join the party. Jesus is actually exposing the fact that the religious leaders aren't really friends and neighbors. They don't really know Jesus like they claim to, or know God like they claim to know God based on their attitude towards the lost. Here's the punchline that we've got to get as Christians today. Your relationship with God is often authenticated by your attitude towards the lost. Jesus is saying, if you really know what it's like to be lost and to be found, you won't sit around and criticize the lost or criticize those going after the lost. Instead, you'll join the search party, you'll get a broom out, and you'll start sweeping. That's the heart of God. That's why in verse 10... It says that God and all the angels are rejoicing over how many sinners that repent? One. And so my mind's eye sees Jesus and the angels every Sunday morning peeking over the portals of glory into all of their churches scattered around the world. All the missionaries' churches we support, all the churches in Kansas and Texas and to the west and to the east. And they're looking, just waiting for the opportunity to strike up the band. To start the rejoicing and celebrating. You can imagine they follow, I said this last time, a bus kid. From the time a bus kid leaves their house and walks into that bus, they're, they're watching that bus kid to see how that teacher's going to treat them. See if that, that bus kid's going to hear the gospel and be loved and be accepted. And they're just hoping in children's churches that bus kid prays and asks Jesus, forgive them of his sins and ask Jesus into their heart so that they can rejoice. Yet lost souls get saved and there are some Pharisees in our churches that sit there unmoved just like them. And these three stories are for that group of people. The Pharisees who say, you can come to us after you Get all the law figured out. Get all the Bible figured out. Get your act together. Then you can be among us. May Fellowship Baptist Church never, ever have that testimony. John Wesley said it better, and I'll be done. The church has nothing to do but to save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. God, give us a heart. Give us a heart. 
for lost souls because lost people matter to God. I'm excited about the third story, which is probably the most popular about the prodigal son. And there's a lot of ways to preach that and apply that to our lives. But when kept in the context of lost people matter to God, it really makes the story even that much more, that much more beautiful. And we'll, we'll address that maybe later.